Hello, this is Desiree Nielsen, and today we'll be mapping anti-nutrients on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix Special Nutrition Therapy Series, where we're going to dive into the approaches, practices, dietary theories, and healing foods that have been used in the most successful practices across the globe and throughout history. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. The 15-Minute Matrix is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons which highlight the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition, and that's the functional matrix. The functional nutrition matrix reminds us of three very important factors in clinical care. Everything is connected, we are all unique, and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15 Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with Desiree Nielsen. Desiree Nielsen, BSc, RD, is the author of the new digestive health cookbook, Good for Your Gut, and the number one Canadian best-selling Eat More Plants cookbook. She is also the host of the evidence-informed wellness podcast, The All Sorts Podcast. Desiree runs a private practice in Vancouver, Canada, with a focus on chronic inflammatory and digestive disease and plant-based nutrition. Hi, Desiree. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. Thank you so much for having me. So today we are talking about anti-nutrients, which can be a controversial term, as you so wisely discuss. Can you first start us out by talking about what you mean by that term? Yeah. You know, I think as soon as we call anti-nutrients by their other perfectly reasonable name, which is phytochemicals, I think it takes some of the pressure off just a little bit. But when I talk about anti-nutrients, I'm talking about naturally occurring compounds in plant foods, such as lectins, phytates, and oxalates that do not contribute to human nutrition, but also that can bind nutrients. And so a really important thing to remember when we're talking about anti-nutrients is that by this definition, fiber is technically an anti-nutrient as well. Wow. That's interesting to consider. Talk to us about some of the things that come up as anti-nutrients in the body. We're talking about physiology here. And I think that that's where we get really confused in the world of nutrition, where it produces food fears instead of us being able to talk about physiological functions. So you mentioned fiber. What else comes up as a supposed anti-nutrient? Yeah. So in addition to fiber, uh, which is the anti-nutrient we never talk about as an anti-nutrient, we generally talk, you know, particularly now that we've had, you know, books come out about this topic, we talk a lot about lectins in plant foods. And so Lectins, they are naturally occurring in many plant foods, such as whole grains and legumes. And some lectins are actually toxic in large amounts. So the first one that comes to mind is phytohemagglutinin, which is in kidney beans. We don't eat raw kidney beans for a reason. And right. if you were to, you know, if you were to eat a whole cup of raw kidney beans, you would actually get quite sick. 
The difference is, is that, you know, as we've sort of like adapted and evolved over time alongside these plant foods, we've also learned how to incorporate them in our diet. So soaking and cooking kidney beans drastically takes down the lectin content. You know, it's something from like as high as 70,000 units in the raw kidney bean to like less than 500 in a properly soaked and cooked kidney bean. And so it's really important to sort of like, because we do have these words that feel like linchpins that were like, ooh, lectins, you know, like this is controversial. Maybe there's something to this. But we have to remember that the dose also makes the poison. You know, technically we can consume enough water to poison ourselves with water, and yet we don't refer to water as toxic because of it. Yeah, so interesting. I love how you're positioning this because it really puts it into the functional way of thinking. Why or how, I guess, did our ancestors manage these anti-nutrients, these foods or phytochemicals that were potentially damaging? So, you know, as we are sort of like evolving alongside these plant foods and learning what brings us nutrition and what doesn't, one of the most important things, particularly with respect to something like lectins and oxalates, is that not all lectins, while some lectins like phytohemagglutinin can be toxic, other lectins are completely non-toxic and may actually be beneficial. For example, the lectins that we find in tomatoes. And there has been some clinical research uh, investigating whether or not certain lectins actually have anti-proliferative properties, therefore being helpful sort of like in the fight against the development of cancers. And so as we sort of learned, you know, which plant foods we can gather, which plant foods we can gather and eat raw readily, you know, we did start to learn that, you know, cooking, <laughs> as soon as we had fire on our side, that cooking is going to make certain of these foods more digestible to us, you know, particularly you know, for folks who sort of follow a more paleolithic diet line of thinking with respect to nutrition, you know, the idea that we did not consume grains at that stage of our development has actually been found to be incorrect and that grains were actually a part of the, you know, developing human's diet, particularly as a gruel, therefore in their sort of cooked form. Yeah. So fascinating to think about this. I want to look at triggers, Desiree, through two different lenses. The first lens I want to think about triggers through are the physiological triggers, the signs and symptoms or diagnoses where people might actually feel the negative effects of these phytochemicals. First of all, is that true? Are there people who physiologically cannot digest these foods or is it a dose makes the poison conversation? You know, everything that I've seen in, you know, over a decade of practice, particularly working with folks who have very significant chronic inflammatory and digestive health concerns, but also what I've seen in the research is that there are very few sort of precipitating or underlying physiological events that would cause these compounds to become an issue. With respect to digestive health, it is possible that someone with very severe gut barrier dysfunction, and I'm talking about, you know, sort of not silent disease that might underlie autoimmunity, but more frank, outright Crohn's disease kind of gut barrier dysfunction. It is possible that any food may cause them significant distress. Is it because of the presence of phytates or lectins in this food? Perhaps, but it also could be another precipitating factor. 
One of the things that we do see with respect to anti-nutrients, however, is oxalates, because some people do form oxalate kidney stones. But we do have some data from the Nurses Health Study that suggests that there is a higher risk of these oxalate stones, not with higher oxalate intake, but actually with lower calcium intake. Because of the function of these compounds to create salts with minerals like calcium and like iron, higher calcium intake is going to reduce oxalate consumption. The other thing that's going to precipitate that is what is our baseline water intake? So urine volume needs to be high in order to optimize kidney function. And when it's not high, then there's more risk of these stones forming. It's so fascinating because this is where conditioned food hypersensitivities can evolve because we're not looking at the full function of the body and its ability to do what it's supposed to do with certain foods. Exactly. And, you know, I love that you mentioned that off the gate, particularly coming from like a digestive health background, the deep sort of nervous system connection that is inherent whenever we're speaking about the gut or about digestion in particular, we see that food sensitivity and food intolerance reactions often come from a place of underlying gut dysfunction. So what I often see in practice is folks will come to us and they say, you know, I think I'm intolerant to X, Y, Z, or <laughs> perhaps, you know, all 17 of these different foods. And when I see something like that, often my client is coming at it from the point of there's something in these foods that's not good for me. And immediately my framework is what's going on in your gut that the act of eating in general is causing these intolerance symptoms and potentially the immune system to go a little bit haywire and not recognize safe as being safe all of the time. And so I'm always sort of going higher upstream into the digestive tract itself and how is that function? What is the rate of elimination? What does the microbiome look like? And not so much about, okay, let's focus on these foods and take these foods out of your life for the rest of the diet, particularly because we understand as we get deeper into it, short-term elimination, something like a low FODMAP diet for irritable bowel syndrome can be enormously helpful, <laughs> particularly in terms of like reducing symptoms. But long-term elimination breeds further intolerance because of how the body learns tolerance. And we learn tolerance from our very first days on this earth via the oral route because of the deep sort of connection. I mean, we talked about the nervous system and digestion connection, but there's also a deep connection between immune function and the gut. You know, roughly, depending whose numbers you look at, 70 to 80% of our immune function lies within and along the digestive tract. And so something goes in through the gut, and that is the normal site for the immune system to learn tolerance. So the challenge is, is if we read about lectins, phytates, oxalates, and come under the pressure that they are harmful to us, not only can we then have a conditioned response to these foods, if we expect that they harm our body, we can actually have intolerance reactions, which is a really interesting emerging theory in food intolerance and digestive well-being in general. But then also when we remove these foods, 
we remove the consistent feedback via that oral immune route that these foods are somehow safe and beneficial to our body so that when they are introduced, there is more likelihood that they will actually cause us frank intolerance reactions. Yeah, I have a huge smile on my face, Desiree, because you're just you're saying everything that goes into the complexity of being a clinician who works with food, right? I always say we want the diet to be as vast as it can possibly be for that individual at that time, right? It's not about subscribing to one dietary theory. It's about understanding nutrition is about where food meets physiology. And there's so much going on in there, positive and negative at times that we have to be addressing in that moment. And you're really speaking to that beautifully. So I want to move into this other notion of triggers, which you're really touching on with the nervous system and the hypersensitivity that comes from us emotionally when we use the word anti-nutrient. So there's the people who are latching onto that term in a way where it's causing them more restriction. And there's people who are latching onto that word as a way to dismiss the work of nutrition because there can't possibly be an anti-nutrient. And I'm wondering if you could speak into that a little bit, a bit of controversy that's happening in the appropriate but sometimes confused anti-diet culture. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's such a challenge, particularly doing this kind of work. If you're doing functional and integrative work, you're often seeing clients and patients who have not yet felt well served by sort of like standard avenues. And these are people who are going through really intense and troubling symptoms and conditions, and they are looking for those reasons. I need these really clear-cut reasons because someone, for the love of God, needs to tell me why I feel like this, and it can't just be bad luck. And so when we talk about anti-nutrients, you know, particularly as sort of a negative force, I agree. Anything that is in food, I mean, what is an anti-nutrient? The idea that it can bind minerals, these anti-nutrients such as, you know, phytates, oxalates, and lectins are found in high mineral foods to begin with. So you sort of have to think about the wisdom of natural design. Like we as humans have evolved alongside this food supply in order to thrive, figure out how to thrive. And so when these things are in naturally occurring in plant foods, which we know based on like decades and decades of experimental, but also epidemiological research to be associated with better chronic disease outcomes, longevity, and the like. Like, we have to sort of take a beat and say, okay, this doesn't make any sense from a physiological standpoint. But the challenge now is, you know, as people are sort of searching online because they haven't felt well-served and they're searching for answers and they latch on to this information, there is a really deep psychological, emotional, and energetic response to this information. And, you know, a colleague of mine, I can't take credit for, you know, this emerging theory, but a colleague of mine, Wendy Bessie, who's also a dietitian in Canada. Who I have a podcast episode with, which is brilliant. We will link to that in the show notes. (laughs) (laughs) Because I've been following her work as long as I have been a dietitian. And this idea of conditioned food sensitivity, that while an anti-nutrient is not actually detrimental to our health. Our belief that this food that contains anti-nutrients will be detrimental can create a significant reaction, which 
just adds this layer of complexity because people with chronic debilitating conditions already have a challenged relationship with food and their body. Because this body, which is this vessel that we sort of trust to carry us through life, is not creating what feels like a safe space for life. And when we eat, these symptoms can get worse, but often not in a reliable way. So, you know, one time we ate this dinner that contained this, you know, high lectin food, had whole grains and and legumes in it and felt just awful. But then two weeks later, a similar meal did not. So it creates a lot of confusion. And so as practitioners, our biggest challenge is unraveling, you know, like going to the matrix and like unraveling, like what is going on? What are the stress inputs? You know, what is the sort of psychological and emotional experience of this client? And how is that impacting not only the food choices that they make and how that impacts their physiology, but also their beliefs about these food choices and how that impacts their physiology, which it's a pickle. Yeah, thousand percent. (laughs) Such an important conversation and really brings us into the beauty of the work we do, right? There's so much, I always say, diet or nutrition isn't a handout, right? Like there's a lot to untangle in the process of working with somebody around these things. So we talked, Desiree, about these phytochemicals and our evolution alongside these food groups. What about when something processed like sugar is called an anti-nutrient? What are your thoughts there? Well, you know, that is a little bit more of an easy discussion because it's patently wrong. You know, sugar is a macronutrient. It is a biologically recognized and required nutrient for human nutrition. So while there are no vitamins, there are no minerals, there are no phytochemicals, there's nothing in table sugar that as a dietitian I can say, eat as much as you'd like. It has so much to offer. The truth of the matter is sugar provides energy. Energy is a requirement of the human body to function. I don't love the words empty calories anymore either. So I'll say while it is a non-physiologically necessary food component, in no way, shape, or form is any physiological basis or any research to suggest that the addition of sugar to the diet somehow robs the body of anything. You know, if we go back to that original definition of an anti-nutrient as binding nutrients, sugar is readily digested and absorbed and binds nothing. Right. So this brings us back to the complexity of what we might be recommending, because it's not to say that fiber is an anti-nutrient, so forget it, and sugar is not an anti-nutrient, so consume as much as possible. It gets down to the reality that anti-nutrients are just alive and well, and it's about the balance. And I find that education is a really powerful tool here. So I use that fiber example to give the immediate sort of like gut check on this notion of anti-nutrients because most of us are pretty secure in our knowledge that fiber is critical. (laughs) Fiber is one of the most important things we can focus on in human nutrition these days, particularly with our awareness about the microbiome. The other thing that I find is really helpful is actually educating our clients and our patients about what purpose anti-nutrients actually serve in plants. A classic example is that fibers are structural, like 
Plants have fibers because fibers are their cell walls. The reason why broccoli stands upright as opposed to just lies in a heap on the ground is fiber. Fiber gives the plant structure. Phytates are a storage form of phosphorus in the plant. So plants use phytates to store phosphorus, which again is an essential mineral to human life. You know, oxalates in plants are what the plants used to help them regulate calcium balance in their cells. So it's not that these are because, you know, that in popular sort of lore, you know, it's plants have anti-nutrients because plants don't want to be eaten. They are a defense against animals that would eat them. That might have evolved to be effective, but that is actually not the physiological reason why these molecules exist in plants. These molecules exist in plants to help regulate mineral balance for the most part. Yeah, so well said. Desiree, anything else that you would share with us about anti-nutrients to set the record straight? Yeah. You know, I think the most important thing is that there is no one food that will ever make or break your health. And it is possible for any body to have an unwanted reaction to any food. So clarifying the science that anti-nutrients are not harmful and actually may be beneficial to human health Um, know that if something doesn't work for that person, it doesn't work for that person. But it is also really important to know that the vast majority of research shows that however you ascribe your dietary pattern, eating more plant foods is associated with better outcomes across the board. So it's just about finding ways of incorporating these plant foods as well as the plant foods that make you feel your best. And that's what you do best hand in hand with your practitioner. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Desiree, for sharing your wisdom with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. The 15-Minute Matrix is hosted and produced by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. The podcast is edited and mixed by Brian Paik of Pacific Audio, and special thanks to Natalie Merrill, Alia Hale, Pamela Geismar, and Rowan Bradley for their support in making the 15-Minute Matrix possible. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to see the completed functional nutrition matrix that accompanies today's or any episode, be sure to head over to the podcast website. Again, that's 15minutematrix.com. We love when you share our episodes with your friends and colleagues, leave a review and rate the show. That helps us to grow our collective message that functional nutrition is the future of healthcare. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Functional Nutrition Alliance, and you can follow me at Andrea Nakayama. And if you or someone you know is interested in becoming a functional nutrition counselor, head over to fxnutrition.com to learn more about our Full Body Systems program. Full Body Systems is our 10-month immersion course where you'll learn the systems-based approach to addressing the root causes of your clients' issues through client education, diet, and lifestyle modification. Again, you can always learn more at fxnutrition.com.